All right. The next chapter is your recording. Yep. All right. The sages. The, this chapter is called "The Sages: Secrets Kept, Secrets Revealed." When we stopped yesterday, or for us five, five minutes, minutes ago, <laughs> <laughs> Sachivati was desperately trying to persuade Bhishma to accept Vic, Vichitravirya's childless widows. But Bhishma had taken a lifetime vow of celibacy, and simply wouldn't hear of it. He adamantly refused. He did, however, offer another way forward, upheld by Dharma. It's interesting that whenever problems like this arise in the Mahabharata, people always refer to Dharma. When something must be done, it must be done according to Dharma. Nowadays, when trying to deal with some issue, say a problem in the community, one generally looks for a solution that does not violate the law. If someone proposes a particular solution, for example, someone else might say, sounds good, but is that legal? Can we really do that? But it's very different when the law is actually sacred, when it's more than something we follow just to avoid getting into trouble or something like that. There's a famous line in a central verse of the Srimad Bhagavatam that nicely explains the way Vedic culture views Dharma, Dharmam tu sakshad Bhagavat Pranitam, which literally means Dharma is that which is personally brought forth by the Lord. Thus, Dharma is the law of the universe, the law of God. Something more serious than just avoiding legal troubles, staying out of jail, or dodging a fine. So, Bhishma explains to Sachivati that there is a Dharma for situations in which a dynasty has no heir and no way of begetting one. In such extreme cases, with a dynasty at stake, Dharma allows for a Kshatriya, the feminine form of Kshatriya, to beget a child with a pure-hearted Brahmana, who is free from lust. Further, the child that is produced through such a union belongs entirely to the mother and the deceased father, the king. Nowadays, of course, we have artificial insemination, whereby a childless couple can have a child that is legally theirs with the help of a biological donor. Mm -hmm. And just as in ancient times, the donor has no legal claim upon the child that is produced. Thus, in both Vedic and modern times, there have been similar solutions to these types of problems. And this was just one of many practical problems in Vedic civilization that were handled by applying different dharmas. In the text, for example, we find, something, we find mention of something called apadharma. Apad means emergency or crisis. Let's say you look out your window one night and notice your neighbor's house is on fire, with the parents gone and the children sleeping in bed. So you run to their house, break windows, kick down doors, and do whatever it takes to grab those kids and get them to safety. Everyone applauds, and you even get your 15 minutes on the nightly news. But now let's say there is no fire in your neighbor's house, yet you run over, kick down doors, <laughs> grab their kids, and bring them to your house. This time, you've got some serious criminal problems. We can all see the difference. <laughs> Kidnapping! <laughs> so, oh, this special category called apadharma. Apadharma. I need to learn how to pronounce Sanskrit properly. Apadharma was meant for just such emergencies. There are Sanskrit statements, for example, directing that such things should never be done anapadi unless there is an actual emergency. This is a very typical statement in the literature. So here, Bhishma suggests the Dharma that allows Ambika and Ambalika, Ambalika to beget a legitimate Kuru heir by coupling with a pure-hearted Brahmana. At this point, Sachivati, with great embarrassment, takes Bhishma to the side and tells him something very private and confidential, the secret of the child that she and the sage Parashara mm -hmm. begot prior to her marriage to Santanu. 
One can imagine that this was one tough conversation, especially given the conservative nature of that civilization. Surprisingly, however, Bhishma took the news quite well, particularly when he discovered that his newfound brother was a highly exalted Brahmana. Indeed, the greatest of all the Brahmanas on earth. What better choice to perpetuate the Kuru dynasty? Now, when the avatar of Vyasa took birth, grew to boyhood, and abruptly left for the Himalayas, he was not completely insensitive to the fact that such a Vati was his mother. Thus, before departing, he told her, If you ever need me, just meditate, remembering me, and then I will appear. And so this is exactly what such a Vati does. She sits down in meditation, remembering her remarkable son, and true to his word, Vyasa immediately appears before her. She then explains the problem, as well as Bhishma's proposed solution, asking her son if he will kindly be that Brahmana. While Vyasa agrees to his mother's proposal, he explains something very significant and suggests a way forward that will produce the best results. First, he explains the obvious. The consciousness of the father and mother, at the moment of conception, will determine the quality of the child. <clears throat> That's why it's best not to stagger be staggeringly drunk on the dance floor when conceiving. You never know who you're letting into your life. In any case, with this consideration in mind, Vyasa suggests that since Ambika and Ambalika, Ambalika had just experienced the trauma of losing a young husband, it would be wise to allow the girls a year to recover. During that year, he explains they should accept the vrat, or vow, to engage in yoga, meditation. This would raise their consciousness to the highest possible level, thus guaranteeing a glorious Kuru heir. Taking that year would also give them the time to prepare for their awkward role and adjust to Vyasa's singular, singular appearance. Now don't get me wrong, it's not that Vyasa was ugly or something like that. It's just that he was a sage, an ascetic, who'd been living in the mountains for quite some time. If you've ever seen photos of India's Kumela festival, which always includes some very unusual characters, you probably know what I mean. I don't know if Vyasa had dreadlocks or anything like that, but he was definitely fresh from the mountains, and the text talks about that. Also, being an avatar... Probably not. Nails uncut, hair unkempt, yeah. long beard, probably yeah. hasn't bathed, or like... Also, you know. being an avatar, Vyasa <clears throat> had large, piercing eyes, which at first sight might have startled the girls and disturbed their consciousness. They were, after all, girls that had always been surrounded by the opulence, beauty, and refinement of palace life. For all these reasons... Vyas advised a waiting period of one year before the girls actually conceived. And this really was sagacious advice coming as it did from the world's greatest sage. Sagacious, maybe is how you say that. Unfortunately, Sachivati rejected his approach, reasoning that any delay would only further prolong the problem of a Kuru dynasty without a king, a problem that was already starting to affect the kingdom. The Mahabharata mentions that during this period, period, other kingdoms had been taking advantage of the Kuru dynasty's lapse of leadership. Some began stealing Kuru land and violating Kuru borders, and even more ominously, certain evil kings were making moves and threatening the kingdom. It's really not that different from today, where we have certain world leaders that are extremely threatening and oppressive, and everybody knows their names. Back then, similar types were starting to oppress their neighbors, taking advantage of the fact that for the first time in history, there was no Kuru monarch to ensure world peace. And Sachivati, as the Queen Mother, felt the burden of this decline and the pressure to do something about it. Vyasa encountered that one more year wouldn't make much difference in terms of dealing with these problems, 
but could make an enormous difference when it came to the quality of the Kuru heirs. Vyasa could easily account for himself as the father, but he had no control over the consciousness of the mothers at the time of conception. Again, he strongly advised Sachavati to wait, but Sachavati was unwilling to heed Vyasa's warning. She insisted that it must be done now, a decision that would cause a great deal of trouble in the future. See that there, because he's a, he's a, you know, he's a expansion of Krishna. Yeah. But even, he, again, he doesn't like to take control of us and force us to do things. So he's saying, yeah. I can't control their mindset. That's going to be up to them. This is also, is. Like, like it was saying in the last chapter, Krishna says, it's not just the act itself, but it's yeah. the, it's consequences. the consequences. And this it's is the state you know, of mind. It's what will happen really as a result. Is, it's the, you know. Yeah. yeah. There's a scene in the Mahabharata where Sachavati goes to her daughters-in-law one by one and tries to persuade them to conceive a child with Vyasa, who was a great sage. It's true, it, who was a great sage, it's true, but probably not the guy of their dreams. So Sachavati talks to them convincingly of the gravity of the situation, and the queens gradually understand. Feeling it their duty to ensure the preservation of the dynasty, they agree, but not without... A good deal of trepidation and anxiety. Sachavati decides to begin with Ambika. Ambika, the oldest. As I talk, I can't help wondering about the psychological impact of all these challenging events on these young women. First, they have to witness the humiliation of Amba. Then their young husband dies of a debilitating disease. Then there are all these problems of succession and dynastic collapse. And finally, they've got to be intimate with this most peculiar peculiar personage. One can only imagine their anxious state of consciousness as the time for conception neared. When Vyasa came to Ambika, Ambika, he was immediately taken aback by she was immediately taken aback by his appearance. Vyasa was a powerful luminous sage, but he also had this long matted hair. And let's face it, it's not like he donned a tuxedo just for her. To the contrary, he wore what he always wore, the typical forest dress of an ancient sage, deer skin, deer skin, wow, deer skin acquired, I'm mixing words together, I did the quote from the choir, deer skin acquired not by killing a live deer, but by removing the skin of a dead one. Among sages, it was commonly supposed that the skin of a deer kept carnivorous beasts away. Interesting, you think they would make them want to come hunt you down, but I guess not. Vyasa's Maybe unconventional appearance flesh to a carnivore would be like yeah because yeah, it's not alive yeah Vyasa's unconventional appearance coupled with the fact that, that she was still mourning her dead husband yeah I haven't heard that either that was <clears throat> interesting you think because it's like a well and also dump. it keeps you warm too because well yeah I mean that part makes sense I'm just curious about the fact that normally they would be hunting a deer so you'd think that the smell of a deer wouldn't keep them at bay but maybe it's what you said the fact that it's already dead yeah well it's like interesting because like the Native Americans would kill wolves or coyotes, and they would use their skin. Mm. They would drape it over them, yeah. and then they could crawl through the buffalo herds, and the buffalo would just smell the coyote mm. fur or the wolf fur. And in a huge, massive herd, they wouldn't, like... You know, they kind of felt safe and protected, so then the, the Indians would be able... The natives would be able to get up close to an animal. So yeah. I think it's it's probably just a sensory like that. thing that yeah. tricks them to... Vyasa's unconventional appearance, coupled with the fact that she was still mourning her dead husband, was far more than Ambika could bear. She was so startled and overwhelmed by the situation that when Vyasa entered her bed, she submitted but closed her eyes during the act. 
She just didn't want to see what was going on. When Vyas emerged from Ambika's room, Satrapati Ambika, Ambika, Ambika. It's so interesting how we're so used to pronouncing things so differently, and it's hard. Via, because it's a long, long ah when it has the line over it, mm -hmm. and it's like because room Satrapati asked about the outcome, because as an avatar sage, Vyasa could envision the future. Soberly, he told his mother. During conception, Ambika closed her eyes and would not look at me. Thus, although she will have a son, he will be blind from birth. That son, of course, was Dhritarashtra, the eldest of the new generation of Kuru Kshatriyas conceived by Vyas. Not much of a Kshatriya, though, if you can't use your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Such of a tea, of course, was devastated because she knew that a blind king could not rule, leaving the problem of succession unresolved. But why not a blind king? It's really quite understandable. Ancient Vedic civilization wasn't like today's, where a president or prime minister declares war and then sits nine stories down in a secure bunker watching the action via live feed. In the Kuru's time, if a ruler declared war, he had to be the first in the field, first to risk his life, and so on. Vedic kings had to personally patrol their kingdoms to make sure everything was in order, and if difficulties arose, they had to personally don their armor, strap on their weapons, and lead their troops into battle. This approach, of course, turned out to be a natural restraint on warfare, since, as in chess, you want to avoid endangering your king. In any case, because of these standard obligations, there was no way that a blind heir could step into the role of king. It was not a feasible option. Therefore, Satyavati asked Vyas to try again, this time with the youngest, Ambalika. Ambalika. It's really interesting how just all the little subtle aspects to the culture, the Vedic culture, automatically kind of self-correct themselves. <clears throat> yeah. It's easy here to, you know, have, like, you know, Obama. People like to remember Obama as a wonderful mm -hmm. president, but, like, he also increased drone strikes in Afghanistan by 700%. Yeah. It's yeah. easy to sit there when you're not actually endangering yourself. And, I mean, Bush, Trump, same thing. They, yeah. you know, you're not getting your hands dirty, therefore you're willing to sacrifice more people's lives. Yeah, it's a to natural get what thing. you want you don't because feel you're not feeling yeah. threatened. You think, ah, oh, it's worth it. Yeah, it's a sobering thing to have be under <clears throat> threat yourself. Yeah. Um, now Ambalika was aware of what had happened to her sister, so this girl was going to keep her eyes open no matter what. But when Vyasa entered her bed, although her eyes were open and she did the needful, Ambalika was so unnerved by the situation that she literally turned pale with shock and disbelief. Afterward, Vyasa had to tell his mother. Ambalika kept her eyes open, but turned white with anxiety during conception. Therefore, although her child will be highly qualified, he will be very pale. It's interesting how the reaction of each queen, her consciousness, had a direct bearing on the child. Sure enough, just as Vyasa had predicted, Ambalika's newborn was very light-skinned, so they named him Pandu, which means pale. After a few years... However, such of a tea was thinking, first a blind child, then a pale one. Why not try a third time to see if we can produce a truly, per produce a truly perfect heir? So such of a tea again approached the elder sister, Ambika, and suggested that she try once more, this time calmly and with open eyes. Ambika considered this a truly dreadful prospect, <laughs> but at this stage, she was too emotionally drained to argue with her mother-in-law. Instead, she summoned a very beautiful maidservant to take her place in bed. As soon as Vyas entered the room, he immediately understood that the person waiting for him was not Ambika, but rather a maidservant. 
This particular maidservant, however, felt great respect and appreciation for Ivias, and thus treated him with all the consideration he deserved. And because this girl was so wise in appreciating this great sage, her son, Vidura, was the wisest of them all. In fact, the vid in the name Vidura is also found in the word Veda, which means knowledge. Vidura, however, was also disqualified from taking the throne, having been born of a maidservant. A quick comment. It is quite a common theme in much of the world literature that someone in a so-called lower position actually has the best character, like this maidservant, who remains unnamed in the text. After the birth of Vidura, which also contains some anomaly, Vyasa said, I think we should just call it a season, and return to the mountains. <laughs> so now there were three Kuru offspring, but only one with the qualification to assume the Kuru throne, Pandu. Thus, despite his complexion issue, which really was not a major thing, Pandu became king, and there was great rejoicing in the kingdom. At this juncture, a question arises that's worth exploring. Bhishma, as we know, was a great warrior. We know that he was part human, part god, and that he received military training in the celestial worlds, where he was given extraordinary powers and weapons. We also saw how handily he crushed the princes that battled with him at Amba, Amba and her sister Svayambara. And in the future, we will see how his military prowess remained undiminished, making Grandfather Bhishma the greatest, most respected general of the Kurukshetra War. Given all this, one could legitimately ask why there was a crisis at all. Why were Kuru lands being stolen? Why was there aggression and turmoil? What was the problem since Bhishma was there? Why didn't he protect the realm till the next king came along? Logically speaking, the answer must lie in the fine print of Bhishma's vow never to become king. Absent a Kuru heir, Bhishma's involvement in temporarily overseeing a dynastic affairs would have amounted to an independent exercise of power, thus technically violating his vow. And remember, Bhishma's moral philosophy was that, act, that the act of keeping his vow is everything. Once a genuine Kuru heir was there, however, even as a baby, Bhishma could legitimately take action on his behalf as a servant to the throne. In other words, the birth of the Kuru heirs freed Bhishma to act without violating his vow. Once they were born, Bhishma could take charge and the Kurus could begin reasserting their authority. And there are descriptions of how the entire kingdom rejoiced to know that the Kuru dynasty had been saved. Here we can also mention a very important point about the relationship between Pandu and Dhritarashtra, which will really determine the rest of the story. Pandu, as we will see, was deeply devoted to his older brother, and whatever he would gain in riches and treasure, he would immediately offer to him. Jitarastra, however, never got over the fact that he was unable to rule. His resentment was always simmering below. He didn't blame Pandu, but he definitely had serious issues with his own blindness. Issues that would eventually surface in very malicious, even villainous ways. So we have Jitarastra, who was physically very powerful but could not rule because he was blind. And we have Pandu, who was also an extremely powerful warrior, despite the fact that he was pale. Paleness is often associated with weakness, anemia, and so on. There's one particular incident that, to me, really showcases Pandu's Kshatriya power. Like all kings, Pandu was obliged to marry and produce heirs. And the Kurus had heard that a great and very beautiful princess from a neighboring dynasty was about to hold her Svayamvara, where she would select the husband of her choice. Her name was Kunti and we'll tell more about her in a few minutes. Recall that we already learned about the Svayamvara ceremony in the story of Amba. If you know your geography, 
Modern India is roughly like a diamond with Delhi in the central region. The ancient Kuru capital, Hastinapur, was located on the Ganges, approximately 80 miles northeast of Delhi. And if one traveled south from Hastinapur along the Ganges, one would eventually come to the next kingdom downriver, known as Panchala, the kingdom of Draupadi and Drupad, two prominent figures in the events to come. So these were two great kingdoms located along the Ganges. Roughly parallel to the Ganges and running west of it was the sacred Yamuna River. Both rivers originate in the Himalayan mountains, and it is with the Ganges, the northern part of the Yamuna, belonged to the Kurus. If one traveled south from the Kuru lands along the Yamuna, one would eventually come to a third kingdom, the traditional land of the Yadus, the dynasty in which Krishna appeared. Mathura, on the banks of the Yamuna, was the Yadu capital and the birthplace of Krishna. It is close to Vrindavan, where Krishna lived in his childhood and youth. And that is our geography lesson for today. Now, let's rejoin Pandu traveling south to the kingdom of Kuntiboj to compete in Kunti's Svayambara. As we saw with the Svayambara of Amba and her sisters when these sort of events take place, tremendous battles can break out among rival princes who are all very proud, passionate young warriors. Even when someone wins the princess in competition, he often must fight his way out of the arena to secure his prize. And this is what makes the princess, <clears throat> prince's reaction to Pandu so singular and revealing of his stature. When Pandu arrived, he immediately rode into the arena like a charging bull, and all the other princes simply stepped aside. His physical appearance. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> She's no. over there. I mean, that's even more deference than they gave yeah. to Bhishma. Yeah. I mean, they were like, oh, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, they didn't nope. even try to fight him. They were just yeah. like, <clears throat> we thought you might come. Oh, I was going to say, so Kunti actually was the half-sister of Vasudev, mm. Krishna's father. And so, therefore... Arjuna's like Krishna's cousin or like, second yeah. cousin or whatever. Like I mean, not full blooded because yeah. But um, Va uh, Vasudev's um, I'm sorry, I'm getting mistaken. She's Vasudev's half sister. Okay. Through uh, anyway, so uh, her father, where she's having the Swayamvara was yeah. childless <clears throat> and he was very good friends with Vasudev's father yeah and so when Kunti was born he said well I, ha I already have a lot of kids I'm gonna give you my daughter to raise as your own right. since you have no children so that's why <clears throat> they are uh... so technically Kunti is one of the Yadu okay. families even though she's living in this other kingdom <clears throat> when Pandu arrived he immediately rode into the arena like a charging bull, and all the other princes simply stepped aside. His physical appearance and obvious strength intimidated all who witnessed him. And the text actually says that he seemed almost like a second Indra, the powerful god of the celestial worlds. To put it simply, he was just head and shoulders above the rest in every way, and they knew it. In the midst of everyone, he rode straight to Kunti, who chose him at once by placing the symbolic, symbolic garland around his neck. Meanwhile, all the other princes were like, great choice. Because nobody wanted to tangle with Pandu. Nobody wanted to challenge him. They simply made their way to their chariots and left for their respective kingdoms. It was truly a remarkable and very unusual outcome for such an event. And so, after the wedding ceremony, 
Pandu took Kunti and began the journey north to Hastinapur. One, one aside, apart from reading through the Mahabharata in the original language, I've tried to think about the text's narrative like a historian. If we plot the points on a map, we find that in journeying down to the kingdom of Kunti Bhoj, Pandu would have passed through Mathura. At the time, there would have been a particular prince living there named Kamsa, who features very prominently in this narrative. Like Kunti, Kamsa was part of the Yadu dynasty, and he and Pandu were actually contemporaries. In the future, when Krishna appears in the Yadu dynasty, Kunti and Kamsa will be related to him as aunt and uncle, respectively. Later in the narrative, when Pandu leaves this world, Kamsa, a major Asura, bad guy, demon, usurps the throne, imprisons his father, and persecutes his own dynasty. In the history of world power, there are many unfortunate, unfortunate examples, as in the Mughal dynasty, of rulers taking power and then basically getting rid of anyone that stands in their way, including members of their own family. For the sake of a throne, such persons have been known to kill all their brothers, all their cousins, and you can throw in a few sisters for good measure, all on the chance that they might cause trouble in the future. Kamsa was actually Kalanemi, the first to attack Vishnu when he arrived at that celestial battle I mentioned the other day, the one that took place after the Milk Ocean had been churned. If you recall, the Suras and the Asuras were fighting, and the Asuras, I call them the bad guys, were gaining the upper hand. Then, being prayed for, Vishnu showed up to help the Suras. What's interesting here is that when Vishnu appeared in the midst of this titanic battle, it was not to attack anyone, but rather to bring peace. That, of course, did not stop the Asuras, who, true to form, attacked Vishnu without provocation. And the first to attack, the one who hated Vishnu the most, was none other than Kalanemi, who had now taken birth in the Yadu dynasty as Kamsa, living in Mathura under his father Ugrasen, who is, he is not yet able to act because Pandu is too powerful. In any case, from a historical point of view, it's interesting to imagine that Pandu must have met Kamsa when passing through Mathura on the way to Kunti Bhoj. After all, they were both kings, and there were even family ties between them. Earlier I mentioned that I would tell a little bit about Kunti, a very prominent figure in the Mahabharata, who plays a crucial role in the narrative's later events. Kunti's story begins with her biological father, King Surasena, who was blessed with many children. Surasena's most dear friend was another king named Kunti, who happened to be childless. Thus, as an act of love for a dear friend, <laughs> Surasena gave, gave his, the king his next newborn, who grew up in the kingdom of Kunti Bhoj as the daughter of King Kunti. As you can imagine, this child was so deeply loved and cared for by the formerly childless king that she was actually called Kunti after her father. Kunti is the feminine form of Kunti. Oh, how do you say this differently? Kunti. Kunti. Is the feminine form of Kunti? Mm -hmm. Is this a line of the, the long Kunti, eye. long eye. Okay, so Kunti is her name, and the um, the king's name is Kunti. When Kunti was a young girl, around twelve or thirteen years of age, something happened in her life that was not too dissimilar from what happened to such of a tea in her youth. Thus, like such of a tea, Kunti had a secret, something she kept hidden from everyone. It all started when the sage Durvasa, Durvasa visited Kunti Bhoj. Kunti Bhoj. In Sanskrit, Durvasa essentially means hardly dressed. So it seems he may have been wandering around wearing scant clothes, although his name can mean other things as well. 
Now, this Durvasa had a reputation for being an extremely irritable sage, who was quick on the draw if ever he was not pleased. They say that doing a lot of austerities can sometimes give you a bad temper, and Durvasa was known for this. Angry old. <laughs> so everyone, everywhere, wanted to avoid upsetting this irascible, irascible sage and receiving one of his infamous curses. Blessings and curses, by the way, feature very prominently in these texts, and Durvasa was notorious for cursing at the drop of a hat, even for the smallest offense, like if they brought his lunch ten seconds late, or burned the rice, or whatever. So when King Kunti heard that Durvasa was coming to town, his immediate reaction was, wonderful, a great sage is coming. And his next, more thoughtful reaction was, oh my god, not him, <laughs> not Durvasa. <laughs> at the time... Kunti was a very beautiful, sweet-tempered girl of around 13 years, who was famous for her devotion to her elders, taking great pleasure in serving their needs. Therefore, the king asked Kunti if she would mind taking care of Durvasa during his stay. Kunti agreed, and ended up serving this frightening yogi so nicely that he was really touched by her devotion. Um... Quick break. Do you want coffee? Uh, yeah, just get him the same thing I'm getting. Fuck. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> sure. Alright, so he was really touched by her devotion. Mm. When, by his own yoga power, he received, he perceived that this girl would have some difficulty in the future, he gave her a special mantra, mm. a powerful technique, whereby she could summon the presence of any god. What he either left out or kept very vague in his explanation was that once the god was summoned, he would be compelled to give Kunti a child. <laughs> now, Durvasa was a renounced sage, so perhaps he felt awkward about spelling this out, or perhaps he thought the point was so obvious that it did not need mentioning. Whatever the reason, Durvasa just gave Kunti this mantra and left. So now Kunti, this youthful teen... Warning, read instructions <laughs> yeah, before... Yeah, read you. all the instructions, how to use it. I wonder, okay, so, so now Kunti, this youthful teen, had this powerful mantra, and she was naturally curious about how or even if it actually worked. One day, while standing on the balcony of her quarters and gazing up at the sun, she thought, I wonder how this actually works. And of course, everyone knew that the sun god was an extremely handsome, luminous figure. So almost as a test, Kunti recited the mantra while thinking of the sun god Surya, who immediately descended from the sky to her room. Something she didn't really expect. On one level, she knew she could call the sun god, but on another level, she didn't believe that she could actually call the sun god. She didn't think that Surya would actually come, but he had come. He was standing right before her, and he had some very shocking news. The one little item that Durvasa left out. The thing that must happen next. And Kunti was like, wait a minute, I just dialed your number, I didn't bar bargain for this. <laughs> as sympathetic as Surya may have been, he had to tell the teenage princess that he, even he could not check the power of the mantra that was now compelling him to act. There was simply no way out. The inevitable took place, and afterwards, Surya restored Kunti's physiological virginity, a common occurrence in such cases. This, however, was little comfort to this unmarried girl, who now had a baby to explain and contend with. Given the highly conservative nature of ancient Vedic culture, for Kunti, this was an unmitigated disaster, a catastrophe of monumental proportions, and so, so she panicked. I mean, what was she going to tell her father? Well, Dad, I have a kid, but hey, don't worry, I'm still a virgin, so it's all good. 
As a highly protected, extremely innocent young girl, Kunti was not emotionally capable of handling the situation. She could see no other alternative but to give the child up. Thus, in a story reminiscent of the Old Testament, she put the infant in a basket and set the basket floating down the river. In the biblical story, if you remember, Moses was floating down the Nile and his sister Miriam was following along the bank to make sure her brother survived and found a good home. Here we can assume that Kunti made a similar arrangement after placing her child in the river, and thus was aware that the baby had been taken in by a very pious, good-hearted couple, Adirath and Radha, who lovingly raised the boy from infancy. And no one ever knew that he was actually Kunti's son, a son who would later return to become one of the main figures in the Mahabharata. So that's a little bit about Kunti, the mother of the Pandavas, the aunt of the Avatari Krishna, and one of the most beloved personalities of the Mahabharata. And now, that self-same Kunti was traveling with Pandu to Hastinapur to assume her role as wife of the emperor and queen of the entire Kuru dynasty. That's the second Kuru queen in, uh, that, that has uh, had a child with a sage beforehand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One day, after coming to Hastinapur and settling in with his new bride, Pandu was approached by Bhishma, who requested him to take a second wife. As always, the main reason was to further guarantee a qualified heir to the Kuru throne, because as we've seen with Vichitravirya's untimely death, the absence of a ruling king can actually threaten the political and social stability of the world. In consideration of Bhishma's suggestion about a co-wife, we can end today with some thoughts on the institution of polygamy, which has never been that successful, and there's both historical and linguistic evidence that confirms this claim. Let's begin with the linguistic evidence. The word for co-wife in Sanskrit is sapatni, sa for co and patni for wife. The masculine form of this word requires a change of only one letter, from sapatni to sapatna. And here's where it gets interesting. The Sanskrit word sapatna translates as enemy or rival, which is what co-wives would often end up becoming. Mm -hmm. Indeed, history is full of all kinds of disastrous co-wife stories. If you know your Ramayan, you'll remember that the entire disaster of this epic springs from the jealousy of the co-wife, Kaikeyi, who caused a mountain of chaos. And there are many such stories in the ancient texts where polygamy leads to all kinds of troubles, including even infanticide. This we can find in the sixth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam in the history of King Chitraketu, mm -hmm. where a co-wife went so far as to poison her rival's child simply because she could not have one of her own. This leads our discussion to the strategic problem of what things should be made legal and illegal in society, and what things should be simply left to custom. The Greeks talked about the conflict between physis and nomos, nature and law, in other words, what things should actually be legislated from a practical or realistic point of view. For example, in the early part of the 20th century, the American government tried to outlaw the production and consumption of liquor an attempt that proved totally, almost comically disastrous. Except, perhaps, for Al Capone. More recently... <laughs> yeah, he jumped on that opportunity. More recently, the government again has tried to apply the very same strategy, this time with the so-called war on drugs, and again it has proved an utter failure. More drug availability and usage than ever, the rise of violent drug cartels, and so on. The Vedic approach, on the other hand, was often more realistic, the idea was that certain people in society will engage in certain undesirable activities no matter what. So instead of trying to abolish these activities through strict legislation, try to at least manage them by keeping them within the law. 
In other words, don't create laws that no one's going to follow and that actually end up weakening the rule of law, mm -hmm. giving rise to the El Chapos of the world. So, after all this negative talk about co-wives, we'll begin tomorrow by telling how Bhishma chose a co-wife, don't laugh, for Pandu. And that's the end of that chapter. <clears throat> that's good. It's starting to get really interesting. Oh yeah, dude. <clears throat> I can't wait till his full Mahabharata is done. Yeah, it's going to be really good. I think he's still working on it. One of the yeah. more recent classes said he was still working on like the beginning because he mentioned something he was working on and it was something mm -hmm. that was still kind of like around this area. But, um, you know, a couple of years hopefully we'll have something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, think, really cool. I think that might be one of the reasons why he's moving down here. Or up to here, work on it? To finish working on it. That'd be awesome. Which, I want to ask him, like, God, if there is anything... I mean, I know we're busy and stuff, but I love Mahabharata so much. I would love to, like, find some way to help him if... If he's so needed. Yeah. I don't know if I... I feel like... I don't know what qualification I would have to... No, no, not... Project, but I mean, but... just doing something to make... Because that's got to yeah. be a lot of work. Sitting there translating and trying to write and type. Like, if... He, yeah, you know, true. It would be... Uh... There's some way to do <clears> that. The nice thing about the Mahabharata is... You know, even if you just read it for... Pleasure as a novel... The core teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavatam, the Vedas, through all the different, each of the different characters in the story also embody yeah. the certain qualities that the Vedas is trying to say, hey, these are the things that you should be doing in your life, yeah. and these are the things you should not be doing. So, like, you have Duryodhana there as an example of what yeah. not to do, and then you to steer what to do. And then you got Bhishma is kind of in the middle. Like, he's obviously <clears throat> yeah, a lot so of great you can qualities, take away but a lot he from it, is too even strict just reading with it. that one thing that really should yeah. not matter that much. And so you get to see, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's, really it's, awesome. it's a great story. I mean, if you're into any kind of, like, classical literature, one, like... Yeah, this is really cool. It's, uh, it's very well, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And it gives you a lot of thoughts about life and i like the way he too breaks it down and really makes a lot of like he draws a lot of lines between mm -hmm. things that like people are very familiar with now mm -hmm. so that it doesn't seem as like you know he explains it in a very very clear way cross-generational yeah very great yeah. very awesome yeah no it's great um at any rate we're done reading now so that's the end of that chapter for the day and uh don't forget to share with a friend if you like it and yep. uh, feel free to comment or message us answersoflife at gmail.com any questions or questions or suggestions things, things like to share. read or things to like to share etc um and uh yeah see you next week thank you